0: This is the theme song that was used in the highlight video for the 1965 World Series between the Los Angeles Dodgers and the Minnesota Twins. The Twins had a once in a generation team that relied heavily, yes, on Harmon Killebrew, Zoyo Versailles, but also on a young kid named Tony Oliva, who is our guest this week on the Lost Ballparks podcast. Ballparks Podcast
1: is on the air. Hello, everybody. This is Jack Buck with Carl Erskine at Municipal Stadium in Kansas City, Missouri. From Sunny Shy Park in the city of Philadelphia. Brought to you direct from Comiskey Park. So we have action at Ebbets Field, Brooklyn. And there's always action here. Paul's oh, the you in Cincinnati, How? Greetings, baseball fans. This is Mel Allen, greeting you from Yankee Stadium in New York City. Sunny day here at Tiger Stadium. The wind blowing straight in from right field. Well, fans,
0: here we are back at the polar grounds in New York City.
1: It's so all full of a comfortable chair. If you want to take your shoes off, go ahead. Wiggle your toes, and we hope you'll have a cold shave or it, throughout the evening.
0: There's always something special about having someone on the podcast who's in the Baseball Hall of Fame, but on this episode, I have the privilege of talking to someone who was inducted this summer, Minnesota Twins legend Tony Oliva. <sighs> Tony Oliva spent his entire 15-year career with the Minnesota Twins. He was an eight-time All-Star, AL Rookie of the Year, Gold Glove winner, three-time batting champion, and the first player ever to win back-to-back batting crowns in his first two full seasons. And a member of the 2022 class of the Baseball Hall of Fame. Tony O!
2: Yeah, how are you, senor?
0: I'm doing great. It's so good to talk with you today.
2: Thank you, thank you.
0: You grew up in Cuba and played your first ball games on the field that your dad made on your family farm. On Sundays after church, dads and their kids would come together to play baseball. What do you remember about those times back in Cuba?
2: There, there was a lot of fun because uh, we were looking for Sunday, you know, to get together. Every time we have a chance uh, during the week,
0: we play. You know, that was the only entertainment for us, you know, play the game. It's apparent pretty quickly in your development that you can hit a baseball. What I find most fascinating about your story and about many other Major League Baseball players is that there is a moment or two of real adversity, a turning point where a lot of people would probably give up and try something else. But you didn't. You kept going. You persevered because in April of 1961, you're brought to Florida to spring train with the Twins. At the end of your tryout, you're told, to your surprise, I think, to go home, to go back to Cuba, because they didn't need you.
2: That was a big surprise for me, and that was a very, very, very disappointment for me.
0: You didn't go home, and you, no. found, you found another way. You signed on with the team in Charlotte, North Carolina. By the end of the 1961 minor league season, you hit four ten, the highest batting average in all <laughs> of professional baseball, eventually rejoining the Twins organization, a testament to your perseverance, you pushing through and not giving up and not quitting when it would have been easy to quit. It's
2: easy to quit, but uh, for me, the only thing I was worried about is like come back to Cuba and how I go tell my friends that I was here in America. I know I was able to make the ball club. They could say, well, he played, I
0: know was good enough. You felt like you had something to prove.
2: Since I was a little kid, God gave me speciality to yeah, that uh, left me to go through to many, many things that you had to go through. And my attitude was that I know, I know I can play. And sprint time I hit the ball. I got a seven hit and ten times but bat. I know I can hit uh, a special attitude. I can be able to hit anybody. The only thing I needed is the opportunity.
0: When you got it, you showed him. <laughs> As I studied your life, Tony, I was saddened to learn that there were times during your minor league days where, because of the color of your skin, that you weren't allowed to stay at the team hotel. You would be forced to stay maybe with a family in a black neighborhood, and sometimes you would be fed. But there were maybe other times that you went to bed hungry.
2: Uh, there was a reality, you know, something, and that didn't let me bother me because uh, I was in the big league. My first experience. I sit down next to a couple white ball players. I don't know. I don't have any idea what was the rule. Five minutes later, the manager and the restaurant. He said, "I'm sorry, you guys had to go sit down the back."
0: They were telling you you had to go eat in the kitchen instead of out in the restaurant.
2: In those days, they not allow the black people to sit out. Yeah, I say fine. They not want me here. It's fine. I'm not speaking too words in English. But the kid from Nicaragua who was with me, he speaking English. He explained to me what's happening. And we don't eat. We come back to the bus.
0: You two just went back to the bus. Wow.
2: Him and me because we refused to go to the back. Yeah. And uh, But that was a good experience because after that, we never, never, never stop again. And everybody ate in the bus or, or, or we wait after we come back to the... Our destination.
0: You tried to do everything together as a team, stay together as a team. Yeah,
2: that was perfect,
0: you know. Yeah, but it's just disappointing that that's something that you had to go through at the beginning of your career. I mean, it's hard enough to hit a baseball coming at you 90 miles an hour, but to, to deal with all that extra stuff, too. I, I mean, I can't imagine. All right, so September 9th, 1962, you get called up to the big leagues. You make your first major league appearance at Tiger Stadium. What do you remember about walking into that old ballpark, Tiger Stadium?
2: I was I was a little bit timid. You were timid? Yeah, you know, I was feeling like a little puppy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for me, it was fun because every time they gave me the opportunity, I was able to produce.
0: Yeah, you may have felt like a little puppy, but you had no trouble at the beginning of your career finding a way to produce. So in 1964... It's your first full year in the majors, and you absolutely begin to terrorize opposing pitchers. They cannot figure out how to get you out. You hit safely in your first eight games as a big leaguer, compiling a four oh five average during the opening road trip. You go twelve for twenty nine. What was it like those first few weeks as a full time major league regular player?
2: What can I say? You know, it's a dream because you know I was playing with the great, great ball players. And uh, and all these great pitches that I admire all my life. Uh, I was able to be there with them and compete
0: with them. Tony, you're playing at uh, Fenway Park against Carl Yastrzemski. You're playing at Yankee Stadium against Mickey Mantle. I mean, it had to be like a kid's dream come true.
2: You're right. When I got to Yankee Stadium, I used to go to the center field because center field is a mile away. But they have all these uh, monuments there, you know, they have all those uh, look Before the game, most of the time when I come to the ballpark, I used to go to the to the field and run a little bit and get loose before I did uh, anything. Yeah, I used to walk away over there, you know, and look at that, you know. Big tradition, the Mickey Mountain, the Roger Murray.
0: You're not a kid watching them anymore. You're playing with them.
2: Yeah. Plus, they gave me the chance to play with them and put them in a lineup. In those days, hey, you fight for your life. <laughs> it's no more like a little kid game. You know, it's like a war.
0: <laughs> right? Yeah. Speaking of war, you look back at the golden age of baseball. We're talking forties, nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties. And if a rookie like you were is feeling comfortable in the batter's box pitchers start to come after you. And I don't mean throwing at your backside. They started coming at your head. And eventually, at Memorial Stadium in Baltimore, Steve Barber throws a rising fastball that hits you squarely in the forehead. Do you remember that day?
2: I remember because I went to hospital. I stayed in the hospital a couple of days. I remember the first year. The first two or three months, I think I spent more time in the ground, up,
0: you know? You spent more time on the ground than standing up? <laughs> but...
2: Well, the only thing is, every time I stand up, I swing, I hit the ball. Yeah, you did.
0: By mid-May in 1964, your rookie year, you were hitting 439. And then later in 1964, you find out you're going to play in your very first All-Star game. A
1: lot of fans are still moving into Shea Stadium. We are, of course, adjacent to the World's Fair traffic was quite heavy, even as early as 10 o'clock this morning. But this beautiful new stadium is filling rapidly. We'll have a good, noisy crowd on hand here this afternoon for the 35th All-Star Game.
0: So here you are, Tony, playing in your very first All-Star Game.
1: I doubt if there's anything more exciting than appearing in your first All-Star Game.
0: And what an honor. You're named a starter to the American League All-Star Team.
1: That brings up Tony Oliva, the right fielder of the Minnesota Twins. He's a left-handed batter. And a fine hitter, currently batting at 335, with 18 home runs and 52 runs batted in for the powerful Twins. No, that was unbelievable.
0: And you left that All-Star weekend at Shea Stadium with a little souvenir. You got an autographed baseball from Willie Mays.
2: Oh, yeah. I got a Willie Mays here. You know, I got it in my collection. You still have it in your collection? Oh, yeah. I still have it. What? You want to buy for me?
0: No. I don't think I have enough money. No, I got it. I
2: got
0: it. That's good. I'm glad you still have it. I was talking with Red Sox Hall of Famer Rico Petroselli on the podcast last week, and he had a Mickey Mantle rookie card that his mom threw away when the family moved. So good good to hear that the Willie Mays ball is still in your possession. I got it. Okay, let's go to July 4th, 1964. You are at the plate at Yankee Stadium. Now,
1: Tony Oliva, single to center and line to center. Currently batting 335.
0: At this point in the season in 1964, you're in a battle for the batting championship with Mickey Mantle. He and Mantle are neck and neck. Mantle uh, went to 333 last time up. And Tony, you may just be a rookie but the entire Yankee organization, including their announcer, Mel Allen, are well aware of your talent. A rip Norton rookie, Tony Oliva, on
1: the next pitch, takes it inside, ball one, one-and-one. One. The scouting report on him was... brief. a major league bet. He reminds me of a tall Ernie Banks. Fast, quick wrist.
0: With the count one-and-one, one, you hit a laser that Mickey Mantle could not get to.
1: At a wicked liner into that big
2: gap in left center, Mantle running as fast as his ailing wheels of couldn't get to it. The ball kicked off a wall to the right of the pole 57 mark, and Lopez relayed it to uh Foyer, the plate but not in time. But I hit that ball man so hard and so far that ball, the ball went over Mickey Mantle's head. By the time he got the ball, already I was in the in the Dugout, drinking me a cup of coffee or water or
0: something. <laughs> you're were, you're were already in the dugout drinking a cup of coffee.
2: <laughs> well, because was so big, but after that, you know what happened. He me way deep. Tony, you
0: finished the 1964 season, your rookie year, with a league high 217 hits. You hit 323 win the batting title and AL Rookie of the Year, you become the first player in modern baseball history to win the batting title as a rookie.
2: You believe that? I surprise everybody. I surprised myself. When I get to the ballpark. Ball, the only thing I want is play and give it 100% and produce that day and hit the ball, you know?
0: When you start the year, you're thinking, I want to make the team. Once you make the team, you're thinking, yeah, I just want to play every day. And you go from those two goals to then, winning the winning the batting title
2: <laughs> well give me the the opportunity to play every day and that was great in
0: 1965 your second year you start a little bit slower toward the end of june you're hitting 268 and you are trailing karl Yastrzemski in the batting race by 74 points did you think at that point you could catch him
2: no i, I never was thinking i would catch karl but for that no by the time this, this is over, I got a good chance to hit uh,
0: So maybe not catch Carl Ustrzymski, but you felt like you had a good chance to hit 300.
2: Well, I want to hit the ball, half of the ball, club, hit 300 hit, it, hit it
0: like Yeah, you hit like crazy in the second half of 1965. You finished the season batting 321, nine full points ahead of Yaz, who you trailed by 74 earlier in the year, and become the only player in baseball history to win batting titles in your first two seasons. So it's not just you performing well. The team is performing well. That year in 1965, the Twins clenched the AL pennant. And, and this is really interesting, too. Your team is celebrating in the locker room that day and you're fighting back tears, why was that?
2: Well, I was thinking about my family, my brothers and my mother, my father, my friends, to be able to share with me. When you're here by yourself, and you're the only one, you know, you don't have no friends, you're like a teammate, as well your friends. You don't have no mother, no father, no brother, no nothing, you know? It's very hard. People don't have any idea what the people come from different countries, or oh, the Cuban uh, people went through ball plays, you know. We stay here; we don't have no family. And most of the players, the family stay behind.
0: And Tony, what I find so extraordinary about your life and about your career is that, especially in your first few seasons in the big leagues, because of worsening relations between the U.S. and the Cuban government, you were not allowed to enter Cuba and had limited contact with your family. And a lot of times. When a player has a family concern, it affects their performance. But you somehow found a way to elevate your performance even during that time.
2: <laughs> I was lucky. Yes, thank you, God. Sometimes it can months before you get be able to speak on your parents.
0: Months without speaking to your mom and dad, especially when you've got exciting news to share with them. It must have been so tough. Uh,
2: that was tough. Yeah, that was very tough.
0: How long was it before you saw your mom and dad? Because you left for the United States in 1961 to go to spring training. How long was it before you saw them again?
2: I saw my mother the first time in 1970 in Mexico.
0: Nine years.
2: I went and play in Mexico. I went to baseball league, make a deal. I go for a month if they bring my mother and my father. Those people said, no problem. <laughs> 1970, they bring my mother. And 71, they of my father and my sister.
0: You hadn't seen your mom in nine years.
2: Nine years, almost 10 years.
0: What was that like when you finally saw her? It's
2: like I can't believe it, you know. It's, it's very hard, you know. It's very hard. It's hard because you never know if you'll be able to see again, you
0: know. And if it's difficult for you, I, I mean, I think as a parent, I've got three kids. I can't imagine going nine years without seeing them. So obviously it was difficult on the family that you left back home in Cuba, too. Yeah,
2: that was really tough. It's really hard. 1965
0: was a banner year for the Minnesota Twins. With 102 wins, make it to the World Series to face the Los Angeles Dodgers. NBC Sports presents the
1: 1965 World Series. From Metropolitan Stadium in Bloomington, Minnesota, the Los Angeles Dodgers meeting the Minnesota Twins.
0: 1965 was the fifth season the Twins had been playing at Metropolitan Stadium, and the late Vince Scully, who had the call on the TV broadcast, took a second before Game 1 of the World Series to describe their home ballpark, Metropolitan Stadium.
1: Let's take a look at Metropolitan Stadium now and check the dimensions. From home plate down the left field line, 344 feet. At the start of the year, it was 330, and they moved it back. The so-called power alley is 365 feet away, falling away to 402 feet, and the deepest part of the park, straightaway center, 430. Then back again to 402. The power alley at 365 in right center and 330 down the right field line. There is a 12 foot high wire fence around the ballpark, and in center field it'll drop to about 10 feet, plus anywhere from 35 to a 40 foot black backdrop to furnish a hitting background for the batters. The starting pitchers during the course of the season would be along the baselines, however, in World Series time they loosen up in the bullpen.
0: All right, so now. Game one, you set a World Series record by recording 9 putouts in one game, including a ball hit deep by Ron Fairley in the eighth inning. I drive into right center. Oliva going back on the
1: ball, away back to the wire, and makes the catch.
0: You know,
2: sometimes you don't know, produce hitting, but you make those kind of plays, and that makes you so good, especially if you win the ball game.
0: The Twins win game one, and game two is to be played the next day at Metropolitan Stadium. The Twins and Dodgers arrive at the ballpark to drizzle and temperatures in the 50s and the grounds crew at Metropolitan Stadium in order to get the field dry and playable had to be creative. Just about every means
1: known to a groundskeeping crew has been used to try and get this field in good playing condition. For want of a better phrase, we have decided that that awesome-looking gadget there would be known as a civilian flamethrower, and they have been used from time to time by the ground crew here at Metropolitan Stadium during the regular season to try and get the field in playable
0: condition. Yeah, so no big deal. Just a couple hours of flame throwing uh, the infield at Metropolitan Stadium, and uh, and the ball game is ready to be played. And on the mound that day for the Los Angeles Dodgers, Sandy Koufax. Tony, what were you feeling when you stepped into the batter's box against him?
2: I don't know nothing about Sandy Koufax. I know his best. The best. You need to win the game, you give it the ball to him, and you have a chance. You have a very good chance to win the game. Right. That year, he won a lot of games.
0: Koufax was virtually unhittable in 1965. He won 26 games.
2: My first hand, I can't believe it. He threw
1: me five fast balls. The American League batting champion, Oliva. The game's top winning pitcher, Sandy Koufax.
0: And then you slap a double into the left field corner. That had to make you feel good. I mean, you get a base hit off Sandy Koufax.
2: Yeah, <laughs> well, you make a feel, feeling very good, especially and that candy kind of game that we won again. Yes. That was a big hit. That was a big hit. The Twins break through
0: and lead one to nothing. Game four, you're facing future Hall of Famer Don Drysdale. You step into the box against him in the sixth inning of Game four. What do you remember about that at bat?
2: I'm not getting a home run. I don't know if it. Was, it was that,
0: that was the one. This one is hit deep to
1: right. It is a home run. And it's three to two.
0: I feel like there could have been a little more excitement in that call. After all, you just hit a home run off Don Drysdale. But the way it was announced, it was like, oh, you just made a peanut butter sandwich.
2: <laughs> yeah, I was lucky. He's nasty. He makes good pitches. And, uh, but you know. For some reason, when you face a pitcher like that, if you think you go hit it, it's a challenge. Because if you do your homework, uh, after you face the guy a few times, you should know what the ball do.
0: The Dodgers would go on to win the series in seven games, but it was quite a year for the Minnesota Twins and for you. Oh, quick note. As you're coming up in the Twins organization, I think we talked about this earlier, there's no doubt that you can hit. But I think you would say by your own admission that you struggled a little bit defensively and it took a long time to learn how to play the outfield. You would routinely take 500 fly balls or more in a day in the outfield, just trying to learn the position. And by 1966, you turned one of your greatest weaknesses into one of your great strengths by winning a gold glove. You're right. i
2: yeah, so proud. Well, I, I glove. All the coaches, a lot of coaches helped me. I'm- Jack McKean, uh, he made me a lot of ground ball, fly ball, man, sprint Oh, they're killing me. In those days, if you play outfield, you better be able to catch the balls and do all this stuff because. The manager will put out with you.
0: He'll find somebody else who can catch it. <laughs> Where do you have the gold glove trophy in the house? Where is it sitting right now?
2: Right here. You know, I got it. You know, someday you have a chance.
0: If you want to stop over and
2: see all,
0: my, all the place. I got, oh, I would I got, love I got
2: it. it. I, got a, I got a Hall of Fame here in the house. Oh, my gosh. I would love it. I don't lie to you. Uh, I got a mini Hall of Fame here in the house. You know, my wife did a beautiful job.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's so great. Got my I got a golden
2: glove, got the balls, got everything, you
0: know. I'm curious, do you have anything from September of 1967? Actually, it's September 7th, 1967. The Twins head to Baltimore's Memorial Stadium to begin a five-game series with the Orioles. Your performance during that stretch of games was absolutely staggering. 15 hits and 21 at bats, including at one Tony, including at one point at twins record, nine consecutive hits. Brooks Robinson, who is the Orioles obviously Hall of Fame third baseman, said of you, Tony was probably the toughest out that the Orioles had to play against. Absolutely in the top two or three guys that I played against hitting-wise.
2: You know, Baltimore has the best pitch staff probably in the in the league.
0: Well, yeah, you're talking about Palmer, Wally Bunker at some point, Cuellar.
2: Yeah, McNally. Dave McNally, yeah. Uh, that was unbelievable.
0: I bet you loved that place.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, uh, the, the better I hate the better.
0: Nine consecutive hits, Tony. Do you have one of those balls? Did you save one of them?
2: You know, I have so many balls here. I never, if someday you stop here, you're going to see... You know, I can, I can I come
0: some, walk through the Hall I of Fame. Know.
2: The only ball that I remember that I got here, I think I hit it in 1969, I think it was not 69, Kansas City. June 29th,
0: 1969, while you're yeah. playing a doubleheader against the Royals at Municipal Stadium, and you have eight hits in a row that day. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. And somebody went and picked out the ball, Yeah, bring it to me and give it to me and put it how many feet I hit it. That was 517
0: feet. Oh, my gosh.
2: You see, the ball went out of the stadium. There was a row behind. It was a a house. And the ball hit the window of the house.
0: (laughs) I got the ball here. Oh, that's so great. 517 feet. Listen, Tony, you had a sensational career all 15 years with the Minnesota Twins a lifetime 304 hitter, eight-time All-Star, AL Rookie of the Year, Gold Glove winner, three-time batting champion, led the league in hits five of your first seven seasons. You received MVP votes every year from 1964 to 1971. And this summer, you were inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Tell me about the phone call you got from the Hall of Fame, letting you know that you were finally getting your invitation to Cooperstown.
2: Man, I was in the house. I want those things that my phone was so quiet. I know I tell it, my brother in Cuba, you know, because he called me every day. And now I say, look, don't you know, call me before 5 o'clock.
0: You don't want anybody to call that day because you're waiting for the call.
2: Yeah. But well, everybody was here. But somebody let me know if they call, they go going to be between
0: 4 to 4.45 or uh, something like that. So like a 45-minute window.
2: Yeah, something like that, you know. Uh, but we were here, you know, my family was here, so I was thinking I just was worried about one thing.
0: Yeah. If they don't call me,
2: all those people who's here,
0: yeah
2: especially my wife, my friend, they could be so disappointed. <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know what to do. Especially for me it was very important, but I think for all those people it was more important yet.
0: Anybody who has spent any amount of time with you throughout not just your career, but during your lifetime, including Rod Carew, your former teammate and roommate, who we had on in season one of the Lost Ballparks podcast, he and they all say that you're one of the nicest guys, not just that they've ever played with, but that they've ever known. Just a truly authentic human being. And so it comes as no surprise that in that moment, the thing that you're most concerned about is how people in the room are gonna feel if you don't get the call.
2: Oh, oh yeah, you know. Because you see I like hey, it's forty five years. This this time I say well, I got a good chance. I think there's a chance I think I have a better chance. That you know, they pick me. But um maybe when the phone ring, they hear that voice on the other side, that yeah. lady, you know. Yeah. Oh, man, my wife, she hugged me and gave a kiss in the head. And those people here, they don't know if they laugh and clap or cry. Some of the guys was crying. That was nice. That was that was very nice. You know, I've been lucky. I've been blessed all, all these times. Be able to play for only for one ball club. I like Minnesota for me. Like I got a big family, you know. <laughs> It's it's very nice. It's a, and now they put them in the Hall of Fame. Uh, thank you to the twins and uh, and all the fans, you know, who uh, pull so hard for me. To have a, a statue in the front of the stadium, that was a big thing. That was a big thing.
0: Every time you go to a Twins ball game now, you can take your, you know, kids and grandkids and go, "Hey, that's me. There I am." Let's take a picture with me. (laughs) Tony, Tony, thanks for the time. And congratulations on your recent induction into the Baseball Hall of Fame a well-deserved honor.
2: Thank you, thank you, thank you. And uh, you know, someday you want to come in, you know, and uh, see for yourself for my golden glove and a couple other things here, if you don't believe me anyway.
0: I Listen, I believe you, and I would love to not only come see that, but I'd also love to come watch a game with you. Okay. <laughs> 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 yeah. All right, Sody. Hey, have a great day, and thank you so much for the time.
2: Okay, anytime.
0: So happy that that guy was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame after waiting for so many years and now takes his rightful place next to fellow teammates Harmon Killebrew, Rod Carew, Burt Blylevin, and Jim Cott, who also was part of this year's Hall of Fame class. Next time you're in Kansas City and you're enjoying some great barbecue, head over to Monarch Plaza, which is the site where Kansas City Municipal Stadium used to stand. And from Monarch Plaza, you can look out toward the houses that would have been on the other side of the stadium that Tony was referencing when Tony hit the ball out of the stadium in 1969. An absolute mammoth shot, 517 feet. And when you stand there, as I did a couple of summers ago, it gives you a whole new perspective on how far that ball traveled. Want to thank our producers? Mike Dunn, Mandy Zavlakis, Briggs Buckingham, Xavier Guerra and Michael Ortman, and invite you to tune in next Wednesday for another episode of the Lost Ballparks podcast.